Welcome back to MMA, BJJ, and life. And Conor McGregor. (laughs) I'm your host, DJ San Marco, (laughs) along with the doctor of love and motor control. He's back. And and motion learning. (laughs) He's back. Yes, Dr. Will Wu is back in the hizzy like thin Lizzy. And let's not forget, representing the world of heavy metal and jujitsu. Give it up for Nick Cazono. <laughs> What's oh, up, Star brother? Ninja. The yeah. Star Ninja. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So uh, welcome back, uh, Will. We did miss you. We were just talking about that we missed you. I don't think, think I'm, I think I'm enough of a man and comfortable enough in my masculinity to say that, Will. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It was probably a much <laughs> higher level conversation. In terms of your MMA breakdown, strengths and weaknesses of all the different matches. So I apologize to everyone listening. I'm going to bring it down a couple dozen notches from last week. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, Will Will offers a unique perspective that we don't have. I'm doing a Stephen A. Smith, a perspective. No, we don't have. I love you, Stephen A. From from Hollis, Queens. What's up? Home from Peak Skills in this house. Yo. Since unsubstantiated conspiracy theories are so popular these days, rumor has it that I was suspended from the podcast for uh, inappropriate behavior. Just bad behavior. Yes. Yes. That, that is the tool. That's a tool that we may use on this podcast just to take care of Will when he's getting out of hand. So, uh, Will, once again, uh, because baccalaureates, which now Nick and I am, you know, let me just flex. Congratulations. Uh, oh. Education um, is important. So because we, we still can't say what Will does, he's going to say once again, Will is a doctor of motor control and learning. Motor control is- and learning. Nick, write that down on your, <laughs> on your Apple notepad. Right. We will never forget it again, <laughs> ever. <laughs> motor control and learning. Okay, so hopefully six days from now we won't forget that. Um, so it's MMA BJJ and life. We are now on uh, Apple Podcasts. We are on Google Play, and we are on SoundCloud. And uh, hopefully, we'll be everywhere. Uh, I'd be remiss if I started the show. And just so you know, MMA BJJ. There was a Polaris this weekend, and life. And so, under the scope of life, we're really limited to pretty much everything in the world that we could talk about with any level of intelligence. Okay. Oh, Chris, I just got a message from Chris Taylor. Let me see if I can turn off messages. I just got a message from uh, Chris Taylor saying, yeah, he's on it. And he, that, that is the, uh, my, my, uh, friend from Gracie Academy and, uh, the, uh, road manager for, he told me the band and I don't remember the band, but he's going to come on with us and talk music. Uh, because he's an expert. Nick just saw his. What do you think of that guitar collection, Nick? Oh, classic. Nice, nice, very yeah. nice. I mean, you know, um, tons of. You know, he had like what, four or five Les Pauls. You know, a bunch of Strats. I mean, those are like cream of the crop. Yeah. Classic. 
guitars you could use in any style metal players play those type of guitars rock players jazz players i mean you name it those guitars are ooh, they nice and he loves jujitsu like we do so he's fallen in love and he's been at it i think about a year now uh but with the coronavirus and everything will are you back to grappling i'm calling it ancient chinese secret training for now okay but okay i would like to rewind a little bit did you say our life guest is going to be is is a road manager yes he is a road manager for a band wait and wait, wait, wait we are talking way more than music if we have a road manager on way oh, more than music oh yeah i'm sure the stuff that he's seen <laughs> Hotel exactly. rooms. Oh, yeah. No, I know. There's a lot. I'm so glad you said that because, Will, see, when I said we missed you, I didn't even think about that to talk about ho the condition of hotel rooms and girls and all these sorts of things. So, yeah, And then we're going to have – we know a genuine and we grapple with a, with a rock star in Thomas Flowers. Tom Flowers. Of Oleander. So oh, maybe okay. we double hit that with Chris Taylor and – Thomas Flowers of Oleander. I'm totally cool see, with that, man. I am pictures of his. Uh... Like he's oh, yeah. in the band Oleander. This oh, he's the lead Flowers? singer. Yeah, he's the oh. lead singer. And a purple belt. Oh, and snap. A genuine bona fide Good Gracie Baja Philippe Del Monica purple belt. He worked very, very hard. That's awesome. He worked very, very hard to, to get there. So, um, yeah. But yeah. So, anyways. You play so... your cards right. He'll sing, he'll sing to you while you're grappling. Oh wow, <laughs> that would be so. Yeah. No, what's interesting with a lot of the rock and <laughs> what's interesting is with a lot of the rock and roll guys when they come into the academy and you try to talk rock with them, they're they're when he was new, he's focusing so hard on trying to get good at jujitsu that he really didn't want to entertain my BS rock talk. <laughs> and Chris Taylor was the same way. But once they get a level of comfort of being in the sport. They absolutely will. And now, and now, like last night, he, you know, was my first night back since like the end of July because uh, we had an outbreak in August. So they were closed for part of that. So I just went back last night and, um, and he, he was very happy. He was talking about the pickups on one. Yeah, I got these kind of pickups installed. And I think he thought I would think that's boring. And I totally wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, no, actually, I don't. Because Hank used to talk to me about all that stuff. <laughs> Hank Edney, my friend from South Florida, who I just showed. Uh, did I show both of you that photo or just you, Nick? I think he just sent it to me. Okay, yeah, I'll send it to Will. But um, So he has an idea of this guy coming on with us. But he's an 80s heavy metal guitar player from my high school in Florida. But uh, I'd be remiss, though, guys. I know uh, we're going to focus on some MMA tonight if we didn't talk about the passing of Eddie Van Halen. So, uh, Will, do you have – well, let me start with Nick. Nick is obviously – this is his, his arena here. He's the doctor of music, if you will. Nick, uh, Eddie Van Halen. I mean, iconic guitar player, you know, the two-hand tapping, eruption. I mean, just – I mean, everyone knows the songs that you don't even – I'm not even like – personally, I'm not a huge Van Halen fan. I, to be honest, I've never really given them a fair shot. But, I mean, you can't deny – what he's written the songs that he's you know sort of done and everything like that i mean even as a you know if a, a guitar player sort of enthusiast like myself i mean you can't i mean he's just he's he's one of the greats as far as his style his his uh the types of guitars that he plays which is the wolf the pv wolfgang and then he went to music man 
I mean, he's irreplaceable. Like, I was shocked when I read on Twitter. I found on Twitter that he passed away from throat cancer. I was like, oh, my gosh. Pasadena's own um, came to from uh, the Netherlands uh, as a Dutch immigrant. He and his brother Alex to Pasadena, and they were made fun of for their accent, obviously, as cruel as kids See, can you be. You know way more than I do. <laughs> sometime. And then they met, of course, uh, uh, David Roth. And um, who was, I think his father was a doctor, so he had quite a bit of money. David Lee Roth actually has done some work as an ambulance, uh, as a uh, paramedic in the SoCal area. A lot of people don't know that, but you could have gotten in a car accident and had David Lee Roth show up uh, at your car. That's awesome. I know. He's amazing. Scary Um, at the same time. Will, um, before I say my piece, do you have anything to say about Van Halen or Eddie Van Halen? I grew up. I grew up as a kid. My formative years of of music were in the '80s. Growing up, listening to metal, rock, the nice. emergence of of hip hop and rap at the time. But largely, it was uh, Van Halen, Twisted Sister, Iron Maiden, that kind of that kind of kiss, that kind of thing going on in our household. And when I look back at it, I look back at how. Hey, this is just a fan, right? I know nothing about. Nothing about the, you know, the industry itself or the classical or the technical components of it. Just as a fan of, of music, what that music does to make whatever your situation that you're in or whatever that you're doing better. And the one thing that I think about is that type of music or how we use that music is, you know, we grew up riding BMX bikes, freestyling. And it's one thing to do that with your buddies, but if you're having Van Halen blasting at the same time, <laughs> how much of a different, how different of an experience that is with that type of music. And then not only what he did with, with Van Halen as the band, but then I fast forward to my son who's 11 years old playing baseball and he's with his travel baseball team and we're practicing and I'm blasting Van Halen during their practice and it's doing the same thing for the team that it did for me and my buddies when we were growing up. And so just spanning generations, doing the same thing about making whatever event, whatever activity that you're doing so much better. That's, and it's not, it's going to keep on going, right? He's, he's yeah, dead. Timeless, timeless he's passed. Yeah. It's going to keep on going for generations and generations. And as an academic, I kind of look at, you know, how I leave my traces, my publications, right? That's how I leave my mark on history. Those publications will always be there. But that's crazy boring compared to the songs that he wrote and what he did, what he did for masses of people and generations and generations to come. So I just kind of look at, looked at it from that standpoint. It can be in my room, just listening to music and feeling good, be playing baseball, freestyling my bike, whatever, and even jujitsu that we're doing now. Um, it's going to make every everything a lot much better than what it is. I want to actually use one of Will's points uh, and just expound upon it really quickly. Um, the one thing, you know, he talked about leaving a legacy at, uh, in terms of music, published music that'll be here for generations. And those of you who want to, I think it's Andy and Alex or Alex and Andy on YouTube, if you want to hear young millennial college students who are music majors and musicians review our music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, rock and roll music, 
listen to these two guys. They're brilliant, and they analyze it the way Will would analyze in a scientific fashion because they study music. They're not just musicians. They're actually in college for it. So check out, I don't know if it's Alex and Andy or Andy and Alex on YouTube. You won't miss them. They have a gigantic following. Second of all, regarding the legacy, um, in a world where people cannot coalesce about anything, we can't agree on whether we should wear a mask. We can't agree on whether we should have a gas or electric vehicle or what food we should eat. Everybody can coalesce around music. It's the one thing where you'll see the quote-unquote something I don't believe in, Red America and Blue America, you'll see these people coalesce on music groups that, that they all love some of these very, very classic groups. So uh, uh, losing a Van Halen or having a, a groups like musicians like this, they produce a, a, uh, an art form that everybody can coalesce on regardless of what your politics is. And it seems to be the only thing devoid of that. On the second front, I want to say uh, two real quick things about Van Halen. Uh, my introduction to Van Halen was when I was growing up in New York and I was living on the ranch. Two boys from Fort Lauderdale moved up there because their mother was uh, wanting to possibly remarry someone working at the ranch. And when these two kids from Fort Lauderdale showed up, they were so much cooler than us. They were so much hipper. You know, we were small town New York, you know, and these kids were from a bigger metropolitan area. And they playing, people used to carry boom boxes back in 78 and 79. And I remember where I was in the ranch when they said, said, oh, David, you got to hear this, man. And they, because of course I wasn't DJ as the nickname yet. And they played Running With The Devil. And when I heard that, there was nothing in music like that. It did not something that sounded like Van Halen. Sure, there was heavy guitars in all kinds of different groups. There was nothing like Van Halen in music before Van Halen. That's how huge it was. If you remember the Grammys back in, I don't know if it was like 2007 or 2008 when Van Halen was going to have their reunion, basically the entire show stopped. The whole Grammys became about the reunion of Van Halen with David Lee Roth. So that's, they're, 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 they can't, it can't be overstated um, how unique this group they, was and how huge they were. And for my third point, I'll just say that in the 70s, in terms of affectation, uh, in terms of uh, um, a style of guitar playing and the way people, the clothes he wore, the way he moved his head, Jimmy Page was the standard that whether you thought he was the best guitar player or not, and some people didn't, some people are Clapton people, some people are Hendrix people, everybody wanted to look like Jimmy Page on stage. The way that he wore his hair, the way he dipped his head, the way he moved, he was the standard for 70s rock guitar player, even though Zeppelin came out in like 68. In the 80s, it was Eddie Van Halen. That's simple as I can put it. I agree. It. Yeah, 80, like... Yeah, I mean, he he was really iconic from the I would say the '80s um, <clears throat> era of rock music and everything like that. I mean, he he had like the technical prowess of a lot of the metal guys, and then he, but he had this sort of sensibility of, in his playing that appealed to pretty much everyone that everyone else, not you know, not including people just into rock and metal music. But 
on a sad note, I don't like to get all Debbie Downer, but I mean, you see all these iconic sort of um, rock stars or, or rock icons dying. And I feel like in today's music, it's it's very different now than it was, you know, in the 80s, even the 90s and stuff, you know, every, the, the, the new generation of people listening to music right now, like my little sister, she listens to like all this other stuff. And it's like, it's, it's, it's straight away from guitar dominated type music into more electronic and everything like that. But I feel like, you know, when seeing Eddie Van Halen pass away, it was almost like, I don't know if it's like a passing of the torch that's probably not the best uh, sort of thing to say, but I feel like the 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 legendary iconic rock star is is going to be like a dying breed how, in today's music. Where I don't think, however, Nick, though, with guys like ahead. Alex and Andy, I think that we have a shot because they are, and they're not the only well, ones. If you guys go on to first reaction rock music on YouTube, you will see a whole slew of people, and a lot of them are young black folks listening to could getting someone who maybe grew up in hip hop or grew up in rap getting their first reaction to hearing Boston or Dust in the Wind or something. It's fascinating. These people are going to keep the music alive along with Kingston. Will, you have your charge. Kingston <laughs> and Ripley. Yes. Oh, every, play that every, music. I'm just saying, you know. Every, every day in the car, every day in the car, DJ. Yes. Yes. Give him a good sampling. It's my my responsibility and one of my responsibilities as a dad. Riz Qureshi, if you're out there. Is, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Granted, my point is, is like there's no new sort of um, rock or guitar oriented artists right now that I think will be around, you know, 30, 40 years from now and be legends. I don't see that happening. I could be wrong, but just based on, you know, the trends in music, uh, people's interests, everything like that. It's very diverse now. And, you know, it shifts, it shifts, you know, like, you know, EDM was big. I don't know if it's still big, but the electronic thing is like super huge. You know, those guys and gals that DJ make a crap ton of money and everything like that. But I feel like, you know, seeing Eddie Van Halen die and Prince dying and all these iconic people, you know, passing away, you're like, man, they're, they're running low on those types of individuals that, you know, make music. And we've got really Jack fun. White. We've got, no, what's, what's that group, that other group that, that sounds Jack like White's Zeppelin? Okay. What's the group that Greta sounds like Van Ze Fleet? Greta <laughs> All right, guys, we got it with that. Uh, right. an MMA I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, thank you for making me feel bad about rock music. That's a life I episode, love you, Nick. Nick, for sure. That's a life episode. No, we yeah, will talk sure. about that when we have the music guys on. But uh, it's MMA, BJJ, and life. Uh, Dr. Will Wu, Nick Cazono, and myself, DJ San Marco. And we're going to talk a little bit of MMA in here fire. And what Nick uh. wanted to talk about was, uh, well, first of all, let's start at the top of the card and talk about Holly Holm versus GDR. Excuse me, Holly Holm versus uh, Irena Aldana. And it seems like the trend continues of what we ha happened last week where we have a fighter who it looked like her corner either didn't know what they were doing. They never <laughs> talked to her about, they never talked to her about, about cutting the cage off. That's been talked about ad nauseum. And she really took a walloping from Holly Holm. Now, granted, Holly Holm made it very difficult for her, but as uh, I think it was uh, either Josh Thompson or John McCarthy, there's a lot of tape out there on Holly Holm circling like that. So, uh, Will, did you see the fights? I did. It was, it was I, I have to say, the past couple cards I'm watching, 
and then I'm not watching and I wake up and the winner of the last fight <laughs> is being interviewed. <laughs> I don't know what the heck is going on, but I'm falling asleep during these things. But I did get to see that fight. And I was saying to myself, that same point, it's kind of it's kind of eerie how we're thinking about it in the same light. But I'm, th- I'm thinking to myself, how much longer is she just going to chase Holly Holmes and just let her do what she's doing, engaging how she wants, when she wants. Um, and I was, I was just, ba- it just baffled me. I was, it was nice to see though. Holly Holmes is her, her game or her game is improving, right? She's adding to it. The takedown, the top yeah. game, the ground and pound. I mean, well, that's not new. She, I mean, she did that last year. To Megan Anderson, took her down. Her over the last four, five, four years or so, her grappling and her wrestling has gotten so much better. It really yeah. has. And She's comfortable. So I was, I was. It's, it's nice to see her from that, from that perspective. I'd like to see how she, her, her technique and how she executes what she wants to do. Yeah. But, and we have these conversations all the time. I get so disappointed of the strategy. I don't know if it's a strategy coming from the team, the head coach, or if it's the fighter just not executing the strategy. But it's it's a NBA basketball team playing zone defense the entire game when the other team is a better outside shooting team and just dropping threes all day, and you just see it over and over. It actually becomes painful to watch after after a period of time. We had to watch like five rounds of that. And so, um, but on, you know, on the home side, she did a good job. She did what she was supposed to do. Amazing. And um, I see development in her game, which is a good thing. And um, over a period of time for, for fighters. Um, and I just, I'm just going to jump in. I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Nick. I, I, I know that John McCarthy and company said, and you can hear in the corner, they didn't give her any advice about cutting off the cage. And it really worries me when somebody is you know, maybe a fight away from a title fight. And that person has no wrestling game to speak of at all. No grappling game, meaning now I'm not saying she can't grapple and some, but she has no way to put the fight or no idea in her head to put the fight in a place that's advantageous for her. So if she, you know, there was never a plan B. And I think what Josh Thompson said, there are a lot of guys out there and I think they made reference to Diego's coach, who we have every every MMA outlet has torn this guy apart. It's almost become a badge of honor for Josh, uh, Fabia, or Fabia. But uh, when they, th- there's guys and gals out there that are coaching that don't belong coaching, that don't know what to go to when their fighter's not doing well, and it's very very disturbing to see because Irena Aldana was out there fighting her heart out, taking hard strikes. And she doesn't have a corner that has anything to tell her. They obviously didn't have a good strategy for her. They didn't have good in corner advice like, hey, you're not doing what we talked about. Hey, you're not doing rest. You're not uh, cutting off the cage. You're not using your footwork to cut her off with the right hook, blah, 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 blah. None of that stuff was happening. And then the fighter is not prepared to take the fight in any other realm other than the one they're strong in. When you saw Vieira in her fight, Vieira decided to meet Aldana in the arena of the fight in which she was strong. Well, what if somebody doesn't do that? What are you going to do? Well, we saw it. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I, I didn't see the fight. I just heard about it and everything. Um, but I, I watched the other fights on that card. 
but yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of it's it's sad to hear that about her because she. I mean, I remember Aldana in Invicta, and she had a lot of hype in Invicta and everything. She's and tough. I was kind of, she's tough. Yeah, and I don't know. I was excited to see her in the UFC and see how well she could do. But yeah, to see that you know her corner didn't really have any answers that were you know pretty apparent that she could have done in order to put herself in a better situation and maybe win some rounds and you know push the fight back in her favor you know that didn't happen so i mean it almost reminds me of uh tony uh ferguson and gagey where you know i think his corner tony ferguson's corner is so used to tony just doing tony and just you know pressuring people and just that volume and his funky style and then him just overwhelming people and just you know just obliterating them when that doesn't happen they what were are you like, gonna do they had no answer i mean eddie bravo going in they're like oh well, i'm not an mma coach i don't know maybe do a do a imanari role or something Could, couldn't be more disappointed in eddie bravo uh and man i don't i don't want to go down it, it's going to be very i will i want you to hold my hand because right now i have one foot in the hole like if you let go i'm gonna fall in the eddie eddie bravo rabbit hole Oh, and then, and then you're going to have to I, lower I, rope. So just hold that other hand. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm dangling over there right now. Don't um, do that. I know. There's plenty, there's plenty other coaches you, can, uh, you but, can lump in the same category too. I mean, the guy I thought and, and think to some degree he's a jiu-jitsu genius. Uh, he used to be the, uh, a color commentator for the UFC. He used to do the scoring by round uh, and score the fights for the UFC. And I thought, you know what? This guy's really a genius. He might be the guy to help Tony on the ground to overcome Khabib. And now I have absolutely no confidence when you're going to sit there and on Joe Rogan's show and say, I'm not an MMA coach. Well, then what the fuck are you doing there, man? Then get out of there. What do you do? I think there's room There's room for them. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna try to walk you back a little bit, Coach DJ. But <laughs> I think when you look at when you look at MMA corners and it's it's multidisciplined in nature, you have to look at it similar to let's say an NFL coaching staff where you have a defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, you have running backs coach, linebackers coach. Um, so you have a lot of different coaches for different areas of expertise. And I think it's I think it's perfectly fine to have you know, a jujitsu coach in there or a boxing coach in there, but kind of from the outside looking in, what I think is you have to have a head coach who's an MMA coach that's directing the show. Um, I'm involved in a lot of high performance sport training situations and modern day high performance sport is multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary in nature. It's a team, it's a team development approach. But in all of the successful ones, everybody knows their part, and they're usually a, there's usually a head coach that's kind of directing everything. And so what I would say from if you're going to talk about Eddie Bravo is he's just not a head coach, but he could be the specialty jiu-jitsu coach just fine. Can I, throw, can I go back to Stephen A. Smith again? Sure. However, however, <laughs> Will, you have the nerve, the temerity. So this is if this would all be great, Will, if I didn't have at my disposal tens of hours of Eddie Bravo on the Joe Rogan podcast breaking down 
uh, this what this fighter did and what that fighter did and what he yeah. should do and what he should do. And Nick can confirm that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's been on there critiquing, you know, fighters. And many times. Many times. And, yeah, I mean, he was hired as UFC to, I forgot, like, yeah, do the scorecards. He actually left that position to coach guys and to do his thing at, you know, his 10th planet, you know, studios and everything, but... And to be the expert on Joe Rogan breaking down all these different scenarios in MMA and what this guy should do and what that guy should do to go, eh, I don't know. I'm not an MMA. To me, that stunk of the most. I don't I don't wanna I, I don't wanna say what I was gonna say, but that was just a turn tail and run away and pass the buck thing. And that's why I'm irritated. So please now pull me away from the Eddie Bravo hole. Because I literally, we could probably spend another thirty minutes on Eddie Bravo. I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. Thank, <laughs> let's thank talk you. Leon. Let's talk Leon. Okay. <laughs> all right. So let's. All right. <laughs> we don't even want to talk about this card anymore. <laughs> I don't care about last week's card. All right. So uh, Nick had a subject he wanted to bring in in Nick's Kazone O, uh, and later on we'll get to Will's. The doctor is in. So. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. So Nick, <laughs> Nick, what's up in the Kazono? Well, just a lot of talk on MMA Twitter about Leon Edwards and the position that he's in, and essentially, uh, you know, Wonder Boy, Stephen Wonder Boy Thompson, you know, is interested in fighting Leon Edwards, but Leon Edwards did not, you know, rejects the offer, doesn't want to fight him, you know, he wants to fight, you know, a Masvidal or a Kobe or obviously an Usman, but the thing is, those guys are all tied up. Masvidal's not going to fight him for whatever reason. He, he'd rather do a Nate fight or, or maybe a Kobe fight or something else. Kobe wants the title shot against Usman or a Masvidal fight. They're not they're not looking to fight, um, you know, Leon Edwards, unfortunately. And so, which makes there's no which makes Leon Edwards in a particular whatever persona makes, makes, non grata. <laughs> yeah, he's in a tough situation. It's like. I get why he doesn't want to fight a lower-ranked opponent like Wonder Boy, but he's not going to get uh, opponents that are higher ranked than him because they're all booked up. So it's like, do you do you wait till an indefinite period of time to potentially get a title shot against somebody or a Masvidal or a Kobe, or do you just fight, you know, Stephen Wonder Thompson, stay relevant in in the public eye, and then you know get some money as well? So I mean, he's in a tough spot, but. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the MMA manager, uh, my favorite MMA manager is Nick Cazono. So right now, <laughs> Nick is managing uh, my British brother from uh, the Midlands, Leon Edwards. Uh, what do you have him do, Nick? I say you should take the fight. With unless, Wonder Boy? I would give him two options. I'd be like, yeah, take the fight, Wonder Boy. I would give him pros and cons. Pros for Wonder Boy is obviously you know the money, that's obvious. But the the other uh, benefit to taking a Wonder Boy fight is you know you have to be active. Like he he haven't fought in a while. You know fans are started to turn on him and everything. I mean he really didn't have a whole lot of fan attention to begin with. So and then the small the fans that do know him are turning on him that were even his fans. Based you don't on want a Tyron Woodley situation, is what you're yeah, trying you to don't. avoid. I got yeah, you don't. Yeah, and um, you know, so it's just okay. So now let's say Leon Edwards goes to the doctor, and his doctor is in Los Angeles somewhere, 
And his doctor, <laughs> his name is Dr. Willoughby Wu. And, and he says, Doctor, I don't know what I should do, mate. I can't get a fucking fight. Masvidal <laughs> won't fight me. <laughs> Bloody Kobe won't fight me. Usman won't fight me. I don't know what to do. What do you think, doctor? I think being strategic is better than the warrior mentality. Warrior mentality is really, really, is a good thing. Right? Fight anyone, any day, that kind of mentality. But if you want longevity, if you want to make your mark how you want to do it, you have to be strategic about it. So I would say don't fight Wonder Boy, but I do agree with my man Nick, and you have to be active. I would fake a pick fight. Uh, I would I would fake. I would pick a fake fight, mm-hmm. like many of the UFC people do, with someone that you can beat, um, stay active with, um, that's semi popular, and say let's do that, and let's just wait our time, bide our time, doing that sort of thing before all the chips will fall, and then you'll get your shot. Um, but I wouldn't go into a situation where it's you, you put your record at stake or you put your momentum at stake for without a lot of reward. And I don't know what his money situation is. I'm just going to assume that he's okay, right? He's not living out of his car kind of thing. You, you just do that sort of thing. Be strategic about it while staying active, like, like Nick said. Um, Here's the thing, Will. Wonder Boy's that guy. <laughs> Wonder, Wonder Boy's that guy. Well, I guess, yeah. I guess if you break down that fight, what, what's, what's the, what are, the, what's the probability of him losing the fight? So, uh, there. Well, first of all, I want to once again uh, thank you for listening to MMA BJJ in Life. I'm your host DJ San Marco, along with the Doctor Will Wu and the heavy metal bass player Nicholas Cazono, jujitsu lovers, one and all. Um, Okay, there is a person on episode one of MMA BJJ in Life who said, and Nick, you're gonna remember, Nick is gonna start to smile any second now because I said if I were Leon's manager, I would not take Wonder Boy. Do you remember me saying that? I know. Oh yeah. We are the champions, <laughs> my friend. Don't know. Go ahead, play the guitar part, Nick. <laughs> and and sure enough, when he was asked just three weeks later, he also didn't want the fight. No, to be honest with you, um, I, I if you remember me saying for any striker, if you are not like a very serious wrestler like Kamzat Chimaev, right? Um, you are in a lot of danger fighting. Uh, don't you remember? I said, look what he did to Jorge Masvidal, a great MMA striker, and he made him look average. That's what Stephen Thompson does to people, and it would take it would take a really serious, like a Muay Thai stylist, someone that would really kick him in the legs really hard. Um, and I don't know, man. I I'm not saying that at this point because. You know what's interesting is three weeks later, Nick, now with you talking what's happened to his persona among the MMA fandom, I'm actually swinging back towards your side now. What, for, for Leon to take? Kind of, yeah, because it, it if he were to get in that space like Tyron Woodley, I think uh, that would be a bad space to be in. And this kind of uh, morphs into a topic that we wanted to talk about that Nick and I were nearly like yelling into the phone, not at one another, 
but passionately about this topic, which is why Leon Edwards is in this in this uh, situation in the first place. And the reason that he's in this, and it kind of harkens back to last time Willie Vanilli was on with us when he said that uh, we talked about the UFC selling title shots. And we're in a situation now where we just lost Dustin. You know, first of all, Leon Edwards should have fought Jorge Masvidal, period, or Gilbert Burns. I mean, that should be a done deal. Like, we shouldn't even be talking about it anymore. That's number one. Uh, but, it, you know, have guys have COVID. You know, he's had COVID and all that kind of stuff. Um, we are now not going to get, or apparently not going to get, Poirier, Dustin Poirier versus Tony Ferguson on the undercard uh, or on the, uh, it was still in the, it was a main, it was a co-main event, I believe, on the fight with uh, the card with uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov and Justin Gaethje. This is really bad. And now, once again, they're trying to sell that, oh, let's throw Michael Chandler in there. You know, it's like he has very little relationship with the UFC fan base at this point. You know, with the MMA hardcore, sure. But we are now not going to get that fight. We weren't going to get Jorge Masvidal versus Kamaru Usman. The only reason we got that fight is because they sold, they said, screw you, we're not going to pay you Masvidal. Gilbert Burns will undercut you and do it for less. And then Gilbert Burns gets COVID. So I got to go back to Masvidal again. That's the only reason he fought Usman in the first place. So... What say you, Will, about the UFC basically selling title shots? I always bring it back to a conversation we had a while ago about what is the, how they want to make their investment back. And so from a business standpoint, if they have bills to pay or if they have loans to pay off, then that's the strategy that they're going to do. I always liked the UFC because the right fight, fighters kind of fought at the right time, and it was, it was almost like a tournament. Me too, and now they're not. Yeah, and now it's becoming a little bit more WWE where it's bigger names, who's talking the loudest or who has the biggest beef. Um, but I don't always like what sells. <laughs> but we it's don't but it's like but, but what I'm saying is it's become purely f- okay. The Correct. reason that Colby did not fight Usman a year and a half ago was because he would not meet the UFC's <clears throat> price. That's why that fight didn't happen. Don't you remember? Do you remember that? That's when Woodley got it. Yeah, I remember that. For for Colby, if that dude Colby had fight, a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm okay with that. He's such a douchebag. <laughs> I yeah, I I get it, man. You know, and again, but, I don't want to make this a politics show. The guy's an amazing fighter. Uh, I don't like what he did, the racist comments that he made. We talked about that briefly, but he's an amazing fighter. There's just no denying that. Yeah, but back to the UFC selling championship fights is they're trying to give people what they want to see. And I'm going to always bring it back to this. Remember, MMA fans are the, are the ones that are, that are booing fighters because they're getting position on the ground. When it's one of the main components of fighting in mixed martial arts, the best MMA fighter of all time makes his living annihilating people on the ground. Right? So if you're going to try to take that out, like this, that's who they're selling to. And so I could see that. 
They're gonna, you get a couple fighters mad at each other, throwing some stuff at each other, whatever it may be, or you get the BMF belt and get people excited about that. <laughs> uh, people are gonna watch that. So it's whatever is the headline, whatever to get people to pay that, to pay that pay-per-view price, that's what they're gonna do, which is unfortunate because like I said, the, one of the main reasons why I liked the UFC is because it was not like boxing. Right, and now, and now it's kind of becoming more like that. I was very motivated to buy that Khabib card, and now I kind of look at it, and it's not as enticing now as it was. You know, it just isn't. So um, I, I, I really don't like it, and, and, and MMA fans have a very, very short memory because uh, it just happened. And now we have Poirier saying, I think I heard the other day, Poirier saying, oh, he wants to fight Conor McGregor for cherry. It's like, dude, what are you talking about? Do you think we're stupid? The UFC will file an injunction in the Irish court system so fast that so that fight if, will not happen. If they wanted to do things like that, they should get a little smarter about forming a fighter's union than trying to do stuff like that. And if they could somehow organize and see beyond themselves, which I understand a small segment of the fighters are getting a lot of money and others are not. So it's hard to look at you're like, you're taking care of all the athletes. Um, then they're just going to have to deal. They're not going to be able to do things like that. They're going to have to do what the UFC says if they're under contract with them. Yeah. I mean, it's just, they have, uh, I said to Zane Simon on Twitter, I said, these guys have absolutely zero bargaining power. And then I mentioned, I analogized what they just told you, is uh, with uh, talking about we lost Poirier, Tony, and people forgot because Masvidal fought Usman, they didn't realize, no, we actually lost that fight. And he only had six days notice to train. And the only reason we got that fight was only because Burns got COVID. But Burns was like Benedict Arnold, and he ran in there and said, hey, UFC, I'll do it for less than Masvidal. It's like, what are you doing, dude? You guys have to think, collect. He might say, well, that's my opportunity, but they don't understand how short this window yeah. is. This money is not going to last you the rest of your life, particularly not with the lifestyle that most of you lead. All right, guys, when we come back in a second, the doctor is in, and we Nick has a question that he wants to ask the doctor of motor control and learning, Will Wu. So we will be right back with you on MMA, BJJ, and life. Welcome back to MMA, BJJ, and life. I'm your host, DJ San Marco along with my co-host, he's Chinese, he's Mexican, he's Dr. Will Wu, and the godfather, at least in our podcast, of heavy metal, Nicholas Cazono. How are you, sir? I'm good, I'm good. Dude, I got some stuff to tell you. We got to talk, uh, before we jump back into uh, the Doctor is In segment, we got to talk really quickly about uh, some podcasts. I want to talk about one called Relative Unknown. It kind of makes me, uh, there's a little connection to Nick Cazono because the young lady is from Cleveland and her name is, oh, ja nice. her name is Cleveland. Jack. Yeah, Cleveland. What's up, man? Give some love Cleveland. to Cleveland, Nick. Yeah. 
my hometown. What Cleveland, up? this is for you. Love, love me some Thank Cleveland. So um, Jackie Taylor was the daughter of a, a, a notorious Hells Angel named Butch Crouch who had uh, joined. Uh, he was in the Banditos previously, but he joined the Hells Angels chapter in Cleveland and committed some very serious murders. And his family had to go. He ended up turning against the Angels in court, and his family had to go into witness protection. Jackie Taylor tells the story of Butch Crouch in an amazing fashion. There, guy, you, you hear Hell's Angels say, I heard one of them say, I, he goes, I'm not afraid of anybody. I'm not afraid of any man, but I was afraid of Butch Crouch. I mean, that's, that's the kind of guy that Butch Crouch was. And Jackie Taylor has emerged from witness protection where there, she was basically left to die, more or less, by, uh, by uh, the U.S. Marshals and fend for herself. No medical, no birth certificate, can't get a passport, no driver's license, all these kinds of things. Uh, and it was a very, very moving, uh, very, very moving podcast. So I want to shout out uh, Jackie Taylor, who I communicated with today on Facebook. She, she actually could be another possible guest uh, on our podcast as well. Relative Unknown, C13 Originals. They have a lot of great podcasts. Um, so shout out Jackie Taylor. Uh, on Reality Life, Kate Casey. If you like reality TV like I do, check out the Reality Life with Kate Casey. She's abs- she's She lives in SoCal, shops at, I think, the same Whole Foods that I used to work at, Will. And she's brilliant. She is not... She is not a one of these people who idolizes the housewives, but she talks about she gives recommendations for Netflix, for HBO Now, for Hulu, for Amazon Prime. She's so interesting in the diversity of documentaries and things, and her interview style is fantastic. She has on the biggest stars in reality television. We'll go on with Kate Casey. Uh, so shout out Kate Casey. I love you. Uh, not that way, but you know what I mean? So (laughs) anyway, let's get back to, uh, MMA and the doctor is in and Nick Cazono has a question because there's been a Twitter, Twitter versy about Israel Adesanya. So take it away, Nick. Yeah. Well, essentially, you know, after, um, Israel Adesanya's win against Paul Acosta. A lot of eyes were on his sort of uh, one right pectoral being larger than the other. <laughs> and it led to a lot of sort of questions on how that became to be. And it almost like some, I wouldn't say it tainted his win. Only, a, I think, a, a small percentage of people kind of was questioning, you know, if he was on certain substances or how that became to be so i was just wondering based on you know will's uh, expertise him on will's you know experience with working with high level athletes and i think you know his knowledge on that is is vastly above me and dj's i'd like to hear his sort of i don't know opinion on that yeah, yeah i'll just take it from a broader perspective working in high performance world right my background is motor control and learning but i'm i need to have 
a little bit of knowledge of some other areas, but I can rely on the experts in the other areas in terms of what we do. And so I got started early with, you know, really probably speed power oriented activity in track and field and a lot of the activities. And so those are, those are, those are activities that are fueled at the highest levels by PEDs. It's just kind of one of the common things, right? We always hear about it when it comes to the Olympics and things like that. Um, so that's kind of the perspective that I'm coming from a broader perspective. Uh, Nick and I were having a conversation is that there, everybody has natural asymmetries within their body. And I was just telling, I was, Nick and I were discussing is a lot of people have one foot that's slightly bigger than the other foot. Um, even if you go into the gym, your workout buddies, they'll have, um, they'll have a bicep that's slightly bigger than the other bicep. Um, that sort of, they'll have a, 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 a gastroc, right gastroc that's more developed than the others. So you, 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 you mean aside from me, right, Will? Like, <laughs> well, if you don't lift weights, then there's no room to, for growth. So it always stays the same. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> where's the comment? All right. But just in terms of usually people have asymmetries, especially when it comes to asymmetrical activities. And if he doesn't, you know, switch, if he doesn't switch stances a lot, if he prefers a stance, he's going to get some natural asymmetries. Um, if you look at other asymmetric, asymmetrical activities like baseball hitting, baseball pitching, um, golf, um, throwing as a quarterback, things like that, those types of things, people will have natural asymmetries where the one side, right, their dominant side is going to be a little bit bigger than the other. Um, so I pose that to Nick. I'd say, oh, it's kind of natural. And then what did Nick say? What, what did you say after that, Nick? In well, you mentioned like, you know, these, these asymmetries can be, yeah. you know, just natural. And I'm like, well, he kind of developed this asymmetric thing in his pectoral recently. So in my mind, yeah. I'm like, maybe he had a asymmetric <laughs> sort of pectoral before and it just kind of developed a bit more based on maybe his training or he could be potentially on something that might have, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what that yeah. time frame is. I don't know what like that probably time like frame within is. like the month before prior to the fight. Oh goodness! Like so weeks. then you have a short period of time where you have you're still training and the asymmetries are still naturally occurring, but you have a intensified in, in, intensified asymmetry over a short period of time, and usually that's a sign. I'm not saying so, right? But usually that's a sign of some extra assistance, maybe some extra ice cream in the diet, <laughs> a special kind of ice cream. Um, so that's when I would, that's when I, this told Nick, I was like, oh, that, and that's a different story, right? If it happens over a short period of time, then the asymmetries are just intensifying and what's going to intensify that. It's not because his weight program is all that much better, right? It's because he's get he could be getting some, he could be getting some assistance, but I haven't, I haven't actually seen any of the pictures for myself or anything like yeah. that, but just based off what you describe, it would make me, one eyebrow would raise and it'd make me say, hmm, maybe there's something going on there yeah. but remember what i said in our discussion in episode one about peds in high performance you guys i mean remember? i'm with you on that i i you said I, I, if i, I remember right. correct i'm sorry if i remember correctly you said whatever dj said was right <laughs> well it was at, it was right after i said that just kidding i'm sorry yeah, no, no, it was it's... right after i said that dj it's like at a high a high performance level it shouldn't surprise you if people are using peds yeah 
Like it oh, really Nate, should. Nate I'm not saying. <laughs> well, Everybody that's has steroids. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, Nate Diaz is actually on is doing a PED too, right? So you might people want to say, oh, well, how is marijuana going to help performance? Imagine, imagine before a fight, right? We'll even say this about in the jujitsu academy, right? Some people have anxiety going into the academy. Some people have anxiety training with a specific person in the academy. Like Will. Having- Will, Will would be an example that <laughs> I would have anxiety about training with. But anyway, I'm sorry, I digress. Imagine a competitive situation. That's to me the competitive situation. If you're in a, if you're in a jujitsu tournament, it's basically a jujitsu fight or a mixed martial arts fight. That's high anxiety. So all of a sudden, marijuana becomes a PED because it 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 de-escalates that, that anxiety. So it is a PED. And so you think about marijuana in terms of all the other applications that we're seeing in terms of, um, you know, pain reduction and things like that. So if he's saying that people are taking steroids, I'm on, I'm on board with them too, but he's not taking, he's not, you know, he's not smoking out every night for the specific reason of, of performance enhancement. At least I don't think so, according to his persona. But it is having, it is assisting him with, with certain things that are associated with negative aspects of training, such as uh, breakdown, soreness, pain, those sorts of things. Yeah, I think he does that for those reasons. And also, I had a buddy that I trained jujitsu with that actually met uh, Nate Diaz he, when I lived in uh, Southern California, and he said uh, when he met Nate Diaz that Nate Diaz was very, very uh, had a lot of social anxiety yeah. when they were conversing with each other. He said. Nate Diaz was very nice, but he was constantly looking away, looking over. It, he just seemed really nervous. Yeah. So, but he was trying. I mean, to Nate Diaz's credit, he was, you know, he was being nice and trying to, you know, have a conversation, you know, with my buddy. But he was yeah. just like, yeah, he was. He's like, Nate was a little weird. <laughs> yeah, I think the whole PED scene, PEDs, usually people associated with with steroids or or growth hormone. Correct. But PEDs is right. It could be it could be high levels of caffeine in in a sprinting athlete, right? Yeah, it's true. considered high levels of caffeine. Or, they limit so, the, the Olympics or, yeah. limits how much caffeine you can have. Correct. Um, before and and so you have to look at a lot of different things relative to what it is that it's trying to do, what it is that it's trying to target, and what are the rules of the activity or what are the rules of the sport. Um, and then you have the rules obligation. But then you also have, there's a sport ethics and morals obligation. And DJ and I had this conversation with Brett Littell at a, in a previous, in a podcast long ago. But when you use PEDs in a fighting sport, then the rules are different because in track and field or in, in basketball or baseball or golf or whatever it is, there's there's very little contact if no contact the goal is the goal is not to contact but in fight sports the goal is to contact so now it's on a different level in terms of what it does morally and ethically within within the sport we're not talking about whether the ufc is regulating with usada i think we talked about that i've talked about that before with you guys is you know it's good that they're having usada but Many other athletes in other sports have been dodging USADA for years. And WADA. And and WADA. And are still dodging them. So if you think that the sport is clean because USADA is there, you're you're fooling yourself. It's not. Um, But it is there. It's a necessary step. And it probably is 
catching the dumb people <laughs> that are that are doping. And my my point was Will's point basically <laughs> when it gets in the face punching business. So for me, if it's uh, my hands are even right now with my fingers pointing toward one another, and if it's a stick and ball sports, it's maybe okay. My hands a, one hands a little above the other. Now we're foreign fight sports. My hands are separated even further. It's an even greater advantage, and I have more of a problem with it. And now if you have female to females doing it, now because of the masculine advantage, it gets even more – it's, it's exponential in the yeah. advantage that they get, and I have an even bigger problem with it. Correct. But other than the, that, I don't care. Yeah, the goal of the other sports is not to inflict pain on someone or right. an injury. But the goal in fight sports is to do that. And so it's a different conversation with that respected from that perspective. Another quick question just on the PED use and the use of USADA. Now, would you say that since USADA has been introduced to the OC, would you, would you say like the, would you say that the sport is safer <laughs> in regards to uh, the presence of USADA? Uh, it's, or, better, it's better. <laughs> it's better uh, than when they didn't have it, but it's. Would it's it be the, significant enough? The sport to, is not clean. Yeah, obviously the yeah the claim is Yosada doesn't make doesn't make <laughs> you know the sport clean, but is the sport necessarily safer? Because I've heard some claims like from Luke Thomas, where his his claim is that the sport is not significantly safer based on the presence of Yosada. They're just based. Well, on well, wait a minute. You, wait a minute. Can I can I jump in there? You cannot measure. You cannot measure significantly. That doesn't well, say anything, okay? If they're doing random testing versus only testing before the fight like they did years ago, I would say that's a significant improvement, but at least the, if there's where's, random where's testing. The, where's the stats to back that up? You know, I, he, I, he needs the stats, not me, because random, random testing mathematically is going to make it better. Mathematically, his, well, his, I win. His, his argument's this. You have the same amount of injuries – the same amount of, you know, guys still get injured regardless if people are on steroids or not. Guys are, you know, and girls Nick, are all, all that is kind of the same. Nick, I don't care. Him. I don't care what his argument is. Mathematically, he's wrong. If you were doing just a test before the fight, like they were doing years ago, and maybe Bellator is doing right now, or you're doing random testing, there's no way it can't be better. It has to be because you don't know when they're going to show up at your at your door. Well, I think Nick brings up a good point about about safety is you have different points of view of safety. You have safety of the fighters in the ring. And then you have safety of the fighter doing doing the doping. And so you might say, is the doping is the is the fighter safer because USADA is there and they have to get a, a, a quote-unquote professional to help them with their doping as opposed to their training buddy in the gym or the coach in the gym that's saying, here, take this at a specified whatever. It's going to make you better. The whole bro science kind of thing, right? Um, that's littered in fight sports. Um, so I think Nick brings up a good point about the safety is that you have safety of those who are doping. Can they do it safely and not harm themselves? And then there's the other issue about doping and then the effects of doping on ring performance. And um, 
I agree with DJ is the do- the testing has to be throughout the year. It can't just be. What all I'm saying is if Luke Thomas said, what did he say again? It's not significantly better. I'm saying mathematically it has to be because no. if you're only testing before the fight, like they do at IBJJF, everybody no. knows when the test is. Correct. They and don't so know right now. Yeah, exactly. And what DJ and what DJ is referring to is if you want a quick kind of entertaining look at what DJ is talking about in terms of the scheduling of the doping process, you just look at the net, the Netflix documentary Icarus. And if you look at that documentary, if you take anything away from it is if you have a trained professional, even if they know what they're looking for, USADA or WADA, if you have a trained professional scheduling your program, then you can, then you can avoid, you can avoid things if you know when the, when the test is coming. And so they're very, very, doping is very, very sophisticated at the high levels. There's doping right now that's going, going on and they can't, they can't detect it because of what they're putting in their system is undetectable. They can te- detect it like as a, you know, as a, like a secondary effect, like it does X, Y, Z to certain hormone levels and kind of do it that way. But it's kind of a lock and key in order to open the door. You have to have the key. It's the same with doping in order to detect a certain steroid or whatever it may be, or the designer steroid, you have to know what that steroid is. Um, so it's a very, if you, for a trained professional, it's, it, it's a, it's a system that could be, that could be, that could be skirted. And if you look at the relationship between USADA and the UFC, it's a different relationship compared to a relationship that you have with USA track and field and, and water. Organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other kind of psychological or, or uh, publicity way of looking at it is if you have athletes getting caught a lot in your sport, pu- the public will look at that as a bad thing and go, Oh, look at all those dopers. I don't look at it that way. I go, you have enough, you have, you probably have a more effective testing protocol than the other sports who are testing and are not catching anyone. Right. And so that's, that's one of the things that you want to think about from that standpoint is, you know, people will give track and field or cycling a bad rap and say, Oh, those, you know, those, all those guys are doping. Look at all those guys that test positive. Let's go. And it just says that they're actually doing better testing than say baseball or the UFC, which, like I said before, we all know the relationship between UFC. And I have Saudi. a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a problem with that. Uh, and let's just talk about it real quick. When we talk about cycling something, and I have sponsors like Petrobras or Movistar, uh, they can afford some pretty high octane. And I can't remember the name of that gentleman in Icarus that said, you know, that he had helped any number of athletes. Um, when you have fighters like Jesse Jess that say, I had $17.70 in my checking account until this fight. Uh, when you have fighters like Carlos Barza from Irvine saying that I can't afford my rent, I have to sell. I yeah, Will's I making. Think she's Ooh, from Tustin. I think yeah. it's Tustin. <laughs> Whatever. Um, uh, and she sell uh, says, "Oh, I got to sell that that motorcycle I won on the Ultimate Fighter because I can't pay my rent." So these stories are over and over. And, and Nick, if I ask Nick right now, he could probably name like three more people who've said that they were flat broke. So these guys oh, yeah. aren't affording the Victor yeah. Contis of the world, the okay? $10,000 steroid cocktails that are untastable. Yeah. yeah. The, these are not those guys. 
Uh, yes, there are track athletes that make a lot more money that can afford that. And certainly the cycling teams, there's so much money going into cycling. I wouldn't be surprised a uh, MotoGP in Formula One. Uh, I'm sure those guys are, are jacked up as well. And God bless them. They have to, uh, in the cases of MotoGP, these guys are, you know, probably are bantamweight guys because every pound on a MotoGP bike is like seven horsepower. Yeah, you not like uh, so. if you look at something like F1, you not only look at that as an endurance race, and it is, and it's an endurance activity. And then you have to have a heightened awareness and ability to perceive stimuli for up to two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's insane. and that's consistent. And so, it's not just driving around a track; it's the that is a highly demanding sport from a physical and cognitive standpoint. Um, and the, and the negative effects of messing up in that environment are deadly. I would say if I took either one of you guys and just to say, you're not conditioned. If I put you on my motorcycle on the racetrack, I, I doubt you could do like six laps without being exhausted. I'm sure my forearms would probably get, well, it's, it's not that you're just going to be mentally, whipped from the the calculating the turns leaning your body all the way off the bike trying not to wreck trying to avoid guys coming around you or you going around them it's just i can do like maybe five laps and i pull into pit lane and i breathe in and out a couple times and then i'll go back out on the track but that so the guys that do moto gp and do like you know, whatever it is, 24 laps at the, the, the speed that they're going. Like, yeah. uh, check out uh, Mark Marquez if you want to see the best in the world. If you YouTube Mark Marquez, you're going to see. Now guys in motorcycle, they have sliders on their elbows. You know, you've seen the knee sliders on their, their suit. Now they have elbow sliders from touching the ground. <laughs> so <laughs> that give you an idea. Oh, yeah, that's, that's no joke what you're talking about, BJ, from a – People don't always think about the physical fatigue, right? But there's a lot of cognitive fatigue that's going on. I have some personal experience with it because what I do is I design learning and practice programs. And so even look at the sport, one of the sports that I do that a lot for is the sport of golf. And I have this professional, semi-professional golfer that I design for. And he says, well, I have eight hours a day to practice golf for pretty much seven days a week outside of not playing in tournaments. And so I design a practice program and he calls me or messages me like an hour and a half to two hours into it. He goes, I'm completely spent. Then I'm looking at it and I'm going, all right, why did you like work out or did you party or whatever the night before? And he was like, no, I've never done practice like this before where I'm mentally tired. And so a lot of people don't, and that's, that's golf. And we all know Golf is not a uh, high intensity speed power activity, right? Especially if you're just on the putting green practicing or in the, in the short game area chipping. And so cognitive fatigue can't be, can't be, uh, you can't ignore that. Um, and oftentimes the right amount is good, but too much can be debilitating. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, a lot of sports, I mean, we just, we really don't know, uh, and whether it is F1 or NASCAR or MotoGP where you physically, you know, 
one of the differences between now first of all any of those is absolutely exhausting you know whether it is uh you know like you said with golf which i I don't really have any experience with but i just know what i don't know and you do know um and with moto gp or something you're physically moving yourself off the motorcycle pushing it away to get inside the turn then moving yourself back on they're very very hard on the brakes till the bike is like sliding and then they're back at it again and it's just uh i don't know i it, it's amazing you know well that's what makes life so amazing is all these different sports and we're going to talk about cheerleading on a future episode major college cheerleading but i'm sorry go ahead will no that that you bring up a really good point even within a a motorcycle competitive motorcycle standpoint you have physical output but you also have the input that you have to be that you have to be aware of so it's the physical input where you feel yourself in space how you feel yourself on the bike and then your constant monitoring of the surroundings and how that relates to it so it's not only the physical output but it's also the physical input and the stimuli input that is all very critical in that activity for, for, to give you an example, if you've ever taken any course, I mean, we know this in bicycling, and, and if you've ever taken a motorcycle safety course, just to ride your motorcycle on the street, they'll tell you where you look, the bike is going to go. And I know when I'm sort of uh, putting around on the street, for lack of a better word, I can make all kinds of mistakes like that I wouldn't do on the track. You know, I don't have to look through the turn and things like this. I discovered on one of my track days last year that a guy was entering the track in a turn. So you're in mid-turn, people are entering the track. And I was supposed to have the bike here and my eyes looking where the bike's going ahead. I can't look where the front tire is or I'm dead. It's, it's, it's done. I have to look where the bike's going to be going because now I'm going maybe 70, 80 miles an hour in this turn, right? I looked at the guy coming on the track and almost hit him because my bike went right to him. He avoided me. I went behind him. I rode off on the grass. I came back on. I apologized to the guy that it was my fault. He was an elder statesman, great rider. And I said, I can't make that fundamental mistake because you always have to look a few seconds ahead of where the bike's going and never look at something that you don't want to hit or you will hit it. And I almost did. And so. folks, that is how we do it in BJJ, <laughs> MMA, and life, life, motocross, Woo. and PEDs, and Conor McGregor. <laughs> not, uh, not motocross. I am so terrible at motocross. I can ride a road course, but I learned in Okinawa, Japan, from these awesome guys who I bought an enduro bike from in 1991. Uh, going on one ride with them through the mountains of Okinawa, I learned I'm not a motocross or enduro rider. And I sold that bike. I love the guys, but I, I said, no, I'm not. No, these guys are on a different, uh, a different plane than me, different level. Anyway, uh, so MMA, BJJ in life. Um, we're going to sign off now, but I want to give out our email address, which is mma.bjj.andlife at gmail.com. You can find my man, Nick Cazono, on Twitter at... Eats thrash. Eats thrash. And he's okay. going to explain to us what that means. Like, Will, what that means. Like, Will has to keep explaining motor control and learning. 
Oh, my original Instagram name was uh, what was it? Thrash Banana Eats, and it was mm-hmm. about I just would take food photos of my vegan food mm-hmm. and post it and make it look all pretty. So I used that same <laughs> handle, and I have to get back on Instagram. It's been a while. But I used that same handle or name on Twitter. But then for some reason, the Twitter just kind of condensed it. Mm-hmm. And like uh, just and it just showed up as eats thrash. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird, but whatever. So, Will, Twitter's become the Ellis Island of uh, social media. They shorten your name to what they want it to be. What's yeah. your name? Uh, Vito from Corleone? Uh, Vito <laughs> Andolini? Uh, we'll just call you Vito Corleone. Wait, Nick, right. are, are, are you still are you vegan now? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. very nice. For years. Going on three years. Three years. In November. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. God bless. So what's, what, what's a typical dinner for you? Uh, either some sort of bean, uh, some sort of whole grain, uh, you know, some vegetables. So, yeah, I eat a lot of beans, a lot of uh, whole grains, obviously vegetables. As much, as much vegetables as I, as I want to eat, sometimes I need to eat more of them. Yeah. But yeah, or some soy, you know, some tofu, tofu stir fry or curry with like a lentil curry or something. Mm. Oh, a man, pasta lentils. dish, you know, an occasional, you know, Beyond Meat burger here and there, you know, the fake meat stuff. If I'm feeling lazy, I'll eat that stuff. <laughs> Not predominantly. <laughs> Mostly, you know, whole sources of protein and carbs and all that. Have you had an Impossible Burger? I have. I have. Like made, made at a restaurant, Impossible Burger? Yeah, yeah. They're and good. It's eerily similar, isn't it's it? It's really good. You get the inside really pink is. and everything. I honestly yeah. think if, you know, you have all these meat uh, anti, well, they, like the meat lovers hate on on vegans or vegetarians, right? It's almost like it offends them for some reason. Like you're in their personal space mm-hmm. if you're yeah. a vegan or vegetarian. <laughs> but I honestly think if you gave them an Impossible Burger made at a restaurant or something like that, they wouldn't be able to tell that it's an Impossible Burger. And I've talked to like chefs that are like, ah, oh. they're like, hey, I, I get like eat vegetables, a dish that's predominantly made of vegetables and grains they're into. But like the the fake meat stuff, they're like, oh, I can't stand it. If, if you're going to eat meat, meat, the real thing, don't eat this fake stuff. Like to them, that's like sacrilege. You know, it's like they're ba- bastardizing like the, the, the whole sort of concept of. of you meat. know, I would look at it as a, a better technical challenge. Because you're, it's, it's like when you say you're cooking and you wrap bacon around something, you say, oh, it tastes really good. It's like, okay. It's like you put bacon around anything. I'm like, okay, anything tastes good around bacon. But then you say, okay, you don't have any animal fats. You don't have any animal products. You actually have this thing, this fake meat, and you got to make that good. That really puts a lot of pressure, technical uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. demand on you at, as a chef. It's almost, it's harder in my opinion. Yeah. That that's just the little fat kid in me talking. Yeah. God bless and, you, know, you. You watch the Top Chef or any kind of show, a competitive cooking show, and they sometimes they have a vegan yeah. challenge. And some some of these chefs like really excel and know how to cook without any animal products, and they make yeah. some good stuff. And others are just like you know they're lost if they don't have meat. Yeah, yeah, they're just like, what is this? Like yeah. they're like whatever, just cook up a you know vegetable medley. There you go. <laughs> I, I, the birds on there. I have I have one love for what everybody, whatever anyone wants to eat, and I would say the least amount of meat you could have in your diet is probably going to be better for you overall. And, the sociology of it is fascinating, though, to me. Well, you know it's what I mean so by the sociology. I don't even want to. Yeah, it's like you have, you could just have someone that orders. Like I've been on, uh, 
like I believe in this nutritional variety, right? I have a, a colleague of mine who's uh, a nutrition, a faculty member who's a, a nutritionist. She has her, you know, whatever, a degree in nutrition, PhD, et cetera. And I asked her about all these different fads and things like keto and like, what does, what is her, what's her perspective on it? And she goes, if you still, if you have a nutritionally diverse diet, then that's probably can be better than just doing like keto or just doing one thing. So I kind of take that. And sometimes I'll do vegetarian. Sometimes I'll do vegan. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll do uh, low carb, high protein kind of thing. Same here. But it's kind of funny whenever I'm in the vegetarian, vegetarian, vegan stage and I'm ordering and you sit down and you're ordering and they hear what you order. It's like this big issue, <laughs> Like They just don't let you order and be okay. Like he just, he wants a salad or he just wants mm -hmm. like vegetables. They, it doesn't happen. They're like, what are you vegetarian? What are you vegan? <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's this, there's this whole sociology associated that just to me is fascinating. Yeah. It's almost like that choice is, uh, it offends, it offends people. Or, or it's like, Whoa, why are you like, why are like the, I think that sometimes people associate like veganism with like, you know, a very intense sort of view on food and everything. They're like, well, like, Oh, do you, do, do you not like meat eaters or like, you know, yeah. or, or do you view everyone as like, you know, um, you know, earth, earth destroyers or something like that. They have totally. this almost like they, they ascribe any number of different attributes to you that maybe have but it's, absolutely but it's like nothing intense. to do with your, yeah, yeah. It's with intense, your ideology. Though. Yeah. It's, and it, it's, it, it's it can, it can be an intense ideology. And then I, I, I'm more of a laid back vegan. It's like, you know, I, I don't like to, you know, try to proselytize people into, you know, giving up meat and everything like that. I, I feel like, you know, the more you say no to somebody or the more you poke, you know, someone to go in one direction, the they go the other direction. They're, they're going to go the other direction. No you know? pun. No, this is not a pun intended, but meet people where they're at, allow them to be where they want to be without passing too much judgment on, uh, on what they choose to do as long as they're not hurting anybody or, you know, let them, let them do what they want to do. Uh, because, uh, America has found a unique and in exponentially increased amount of ways to divide one another over everything, whether it's your car, whether it's what you buy in the store or how you eat or uh, whether you want to ma wear a mask or don't wear a mask. You know, the best thing, like, because now we have situations where people are comfortable to be going out of their house. Some people don't. And, you know, uh, I can't push my views on you. I can just tell you this is how I feel about it. And I respect that maybe you feel different about it. But, yeah, and their black belt only classes were the white belt and blue yes, belt only yeah, classes. Where's Come the, on, man. Where's the Willie Vanilli heel rippers? All right, uh, guys, <laughs> we got to sign off. This has really been a great episode and so much fun to listen to you guys talk. We got into PEDs. We're going to have to really think about how to hashtag this one because there's a lot of different cool topics that we covered. So Nick will help me out with that. Will, uh, it's great to have you back on the show. Uh, we missed you. And Off suspension. Thank you for letting me back. I apologize <laughs> once yeah. again. Yeah, Will was in Folsom. He was doing his time in Folsom. <laughs> so, and we'll bring you more podcast uh, recommendations. There's so many great podcasts out there and i'll probably have a couple of them next week 
uh, to tell you guys about as well. There's just so much good content. Everybody's podcasting, um, you know, uh, this show and my podcast was around uh, a long time before some of them, but I'm so happy that Will has decided to uh, let himself be heard and Nick as well um, on uh, our new show, our new iteration. So we should be back. We're expecting to be back. I am going on a work trip starting next week on the 14th to the 24th. I'll be gone. I will attempt to bring my gear and meet up with you guys on the road, if possible, in the hotel room. If my work times uh, that that we can, you know, still do the show, but I'll be on the road doing it. I hope my work times will align with when you're available. We'll shoot for next week at uh, same bat time, same bat channel, which was uh, nine central and seven p.m. Pacific time. So. Um, so for uh, Dr. Will Wu and Nick Kazono, I, I want to say peace out, one love, and we'll see you down the road. Peace.